Hello, and welcome to IBM Developer. I'm your host, Luke Schantz. In this edition of our Origin Stories interview series, I am pleased to bring you a conversation with Beat Busel. Beat is part of the IBM research staff in the Dublin Research Laboratory, and he specializes in AI and machine learning. Hello, Beat. Hello, Luke. Hello, listeners. Well, thank you for taking the time to connect today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But before we get the ball rolling, could you please give yourself a brief introduction to our viewers and listeners? Yes, of course. Uh, as I said, my name is Beat Pisser. I'm a research staff member, and I'm working in the areas of security and machine learning. And as part of that, I'm leading the development of this toolbox, adversarial threats against machine learning models and applications. Fantastic. So part of this origin story series is really going to be digging into the sort of your history and, and how you got where you are today. Just to give a little more context, let's explore the adversarial robust toolkit a little bit, just to, so people understand the area in which you work. Maybe to give some context, or in, over the past years, or maybe all, almost already, I've really seen the search of, of applications based on machine learning, which then became so strong that we started to call it artificial intelligence. And we see more and more applications and products that you can buy that contain machine learning technology and artificial intelligence technology. But at the same time, the possible threat of adversarial actors against these machine learning applications has not got the same attention as the real applications. So, and uh, that's where adversarial robustness toolbox comes in. It connects with most of the popular machine learning frameworks and tries to show other possible adversarial threats against models and applications that are built with these machine learning frameworks. I think a lot of uh, the users that we have talked to, they assume that the security is already in these popular machine learning frameworks and that nothing nothing can happen and it's it's uh, they just can apply these frameworks. And with adversarial robots toolbox, we want to provide everybody uh, especially developers and researchers in these areas, the tools that they need to run these experiments that are currently state-of-the-art in the research community and evaluate their models against these adversarial threats to get an idea uh, how bad could it get if, if that model would come under it. So I'm a bit of a, a novice in this space, but I hear a lot of talk uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, you know, data science, machine learning, and AI about bias, right? So you hear that if, if the data is bad going in, it's the, the cliche, garbage in, garbage out, right? If, if you don't have good data. So is this a situation where people could actually say, like, infect your data with, with corrupt information then that would affect your model? Is, is this something, is this one of the threats that we face? Um, this is a, uh, you mentioned bias. Uh, Bias is not directly something that the adversarial robustness toolbox is looking at, but one of our partner libraries, which is Fairness for AI, which also comes from IBM Research, they are specifically focusing on, on biases in machine learning, which is also very, a very important topic. Uh, the adversarial robustness toolbox focuses more on things that you do to the training data at the numerical kind of level where the data is represented. So, we don't, uh, uh, the serial robustness toolbox, uh, for example, focuses, as you mentioned, you mentioned this example, garbage in, garbage out, kind of what could come close to that is, for example, the poisoning attacks that we have. So if somebody manages to add the imperceptible patterns to your training data or parts of your training data, 
and you train a model on that data, it could be that the model then contains a backdoor that is only known to the person who created these imperceptible poisoning patterns. And once the model is, for example, deployed in a product, that attacker could then come back and exploit this backdoor in the model, <coughs> uh, sending data for evaluation to that model, containing that backdoor, and then kind of secretly influence the model's behavior without everybody else knowing. So that's a big, uh, big concern in in in, uh, in machine learning models is how to know if a model contains such a backdoor because there's from the outside there's nothing visible that there's such a backdoor. It just looks perfectly normal. And uh, the adversarial robustness toolbox in in the poisoning module tries to provide the tools to stage poisoning attacks so that people can uh, test their defenses against these attacks, but also provides tools for defenses against uh, poisoning attacks, for example. Interesting. So let's dig into the portion where we, we get to the origin story here. What were those I- impulses that uh, brought you here? So, you know, for some folks, it was the video game or the graphing calculator or just math class. So if we rewind back to your, you know, childhood or adolescence, where, where was the spark that set you on your, your path as a, a developer and technologist? I would say uh, it was mainly, my, my favorite toy was Lego Technics, or these Lego sets where you can really build these machines that have one, one or more functions. You can build cranes that actually operate as cranes. And it was this, uh, I think that was the start where I really liked to start building things that automatically then do something, you know, building these machines. and then. As I got older, I, uh, there was then the time when uh, PCs became more available. So I started programming. My, my parents sent me to a programming course. And that's where I then realized uh, the, the power behind software and how, uh, how powerful machines can be built just with softwares. And from then on, I continued through my university studies uh, working on com- uh, computer simulations of real world processes because uh, I, I was fascinated by the opportunity to visualize mathematics. We have the opportunity to simulate real-world processes and then make predictions based on these uh, simulations. <clears throat> and once I joined then IBM Research, I came into contact with my current team who is working on machine learning. And that's when the topic started. Uh, as we were interested in, in the security of these applications, what could go wrong with these uh, machine learning applications? And the reason I'm currently working on it, because I think it's a really important topic, because we have deployed these machine learning applications in a wide abundance, but we are just uh, a few years behind starting to think what could be possible dangers uh, with exposure of these machine learning models towards people who want to, for example, hack them or uh, uh, use use them in a way that we didn't intend them to be used when we created these machine learning models. I guess this is really one of the struggles, right? As we innovate and especially, you know, creating this hybrid cloud world we live in has such a surface area for attack, right? Now it's the data is everywhere. It's on the mobile straight through to cloud and into on-prem. So there's such a huge surface area. Um, So you mentioned the poisoning attack. What other sorts of threats are there? Yeah, Uh, so the artist short for the adversarial robustness toolbox covers four threats so far. So that's uh, poison, as we already mentioned. Uh, It also covers evasion. 
So evasion is usually the process where somebody makes small perturbations to the input to the model and then changes the, for example, classification that is returned by that model. That's uh, an interesting area because it kind of is legally also a little bit a gray area. Imagine that you could have an, a medical image that, and you have a model that classifies these medical images, for example, of cancer, uh, to classify it as uh, positive or negative. And what people have shown is that if you slightly rotate that image, you can change the classification of the same image just by slight rotation of the image. And legally, there's nothing that says you are not allowed to rotate an image if you feed it to a machine learning model. But on the other hand, there's also this morally kind of or ethical uh, question, should you be allowed to rotate an image to, to get a favorable decision of a machine learning model for you? Uh, these are some questions that we still have to have to answer when we develop, deploy these machine learning models. So that's kind of evasion. Then we also have uh, extraction. Extraction is a, an attack that often that is mostly of concern for already created and deployed models. That if a user can make a, if a user is allowed to make repeated queries to the same model, the user could devise these queries in a way that would allow him probably after a thousand queries usually to have a quite good copy of that actual model. <clears throat> and that's kind of uh, model theft is a different word of it. And that comes into concern for very valuable and proprietary models where companies have spent a lot of money to, to create the training data, uh, to train that model. And once they deploy, they fear that that model could just be stolen by somebody making queries to that model. And the, the last, uh, the most uh, recent kind of attack that we have added are inference attacks. Inference attacks is where a user goes, basically go, tries to go through a model to learn something about the training data that has been used to train that model. And the, the concern there is privacy because uh, um, it, it, it shows that it is not just enough to, to protect the data and make sure that it, uh, nobody can uh, look at the data who is not authorized to it, so to, to preserve the privacy of the data. Now, the problem is if you train a machine learning model on that and you share that model with with uh, with users. Some uh, malicious user could use an inference attack to potentially even ad identify a single ent entries in the training data without having direct access to the training data. So this shows that uh, there's a possibility for a, a private information leak, even if the users only have access to them. So these are the four big areas: evasion, poisoning, extraction, and inference. Where where the adversarial robustness toolbox provides tools for attacks and defenses. So it, it makes sense to me why IBM is interested in this and, and we're working on it and we want to share it because it's, it's everybody's business. We want everybody to be secure. My question here is, how does this relate to, because this is so new, how does this relate to uh, regulation? So I'm imagining if there's uh, personal data involved, something like GDPR could be in effect. If there's healthcare data, HIPAA would be in effect. But is there any, uh, you know, regulation within countries or internationally around the actual AI and machine learning, or does it sort of have to fall into one of these other categories? These are important questions, especially with uh, strong regulations like GDPR and, and so. Um, let's say. 
I'm not sure if I have the complete overview in this area, but uh, for example, if um, CDPR really requires you that uh, really puts a large focus on the privacy of, of, of the data that is used to train certain machine learning models. And as, as I as showed in the previous, uh, or mentioned in the previous example, if if your model would be leaking uh, information about the single entry in that training data set, you basically would be violating these privacy laws. And there are very big fines uh, uh, already uh, dis distributed for, for uh, su such violations. So the companies are quite concerned about making sure that there are no privacy, uh, privacy breaches and uh, data leaks. Where the applications of, of art comes in here is that even if you, let's say, use your best uh, knowledge to, to train your machine learning models in the right way to, uh, to adhere to all the laws that are in place and all the, the guidelines that your company wants to follow, you still want to have a tool to then actually make sure that your model is up to these standards. Because after that, initial, after that training process, your model doesn't look different than a model that has been trained with a conventional process. It's still the same architecture, maybe a little bit different weights, but just from the numerical values of the weights, you don't see that this is a, a secure model and the other model is not secure. So you cannot distinguish them. But once you, but then at this step, you can use the tools of art and stage an attack against these two models, the secure model and the, let's say, the normal model. And then the attack will show you that the normal model is much more vulnerable than the secure model. And that shows where the application comes in. It's really this verify step at the end after you've done everything the right way, training the models, take, taking care about the data and all these things. You, before you deploy, you want to use R to really verify that it is as robust as you think it is, just to verify before you then actually deploy it. So is this the sort of thing that if folks are thinking, hey, my company, you know, isn't using machine learning or AI yet, but we, we're we going to, is this a starting point or is this something you bolt on after? I would say it's a, it depends a little bit on which, which attack type, for example. So if you, if you think about the poisoning case, if you want to make sure that your training data doesn't contain any poison, you have to deploy these defenses already before you train the model because you have to, to find or identify the poison before training a model on that. Now, uh, for example, the same thing is in, against the privacy attacks. You have to train the, the model in a privacy preserving, with a privacy preserving algorithm. So that's already something once you are creating or training the model. The same is also if you want to defend against evasion, you have to follow adversarial training protocols. That's also something that has to be done during training or creating the model. Now, as, as mentioned in, in the last uh, answer, is in, in all the attacks, there's always this veri verification step which is between creating the model and deploying the model. It's just to make sure how robust is it actually, that model that you want to deploy. Because even if uh, it, there could be possibilities that you even use, you use the right algorithms, you have cleaned the data and everything, but maybe you, maybe it just the uh, different parameters have been used that slightly decrease the robustness, and you don't notice that. So you, you want to use the tools of art to stage an attack 
and verify that we actually have achieved that robustness. It just gives you then a better feeling to deploy that model, knowing that you have tested it as good as you can with the state-of-the-art tools of art, and then you have done as much as is currently is possible to test that your model is as insecure as it can be, and especially as you think it, it should be. It reminds me of, like, I don't know, some like gambling cheats, like in a casino or like some sort of espionage story, right? That idea of like, everything could look fine, but you have, there's, there's ways of detecting these anomalies. And then it also reminds me of espionage, where a little bit of disinformation could have these cataclysmic effects, but it, it doesn't look obvious, right? It's you, you, without the tool set, it's Im- imperceivable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's especially if we look, for example, at the perturbations that are required to, to run an uh, evasion attack, these perturbations are usually so small that you, it would be very difficult to, to uh, prove an intent by the user that these perturbations have been added with, with a malicious intent or because Usually, let's say for image classification, as we show in the presentation that I'm giving in this conference, the, you're, you usually have to change the pixel values only one or two pixel units. And there's no law that says you're not allowed to do it. But uh, if, if uh, it's, so this, this is very difficult. And I think this is probably an area where people still are in the process of trying to find out how, how could the, uh, possible damage that is created through such attacks, how would that have to be uh, uh, determined in the end? So, yeah, yeah. Something I want to mention here that's also uh, to that, I think it's an, it will be an ongoing battle between the attack and the defense side. It's uh, currently, I, I think the attacks are a little bit stronger than the available defenses, but usually it's if a new defense comes out, it doesn't take long until somebody investigates it and evaluates it and finds an attack that breaks that defense. So it's an, it's an ongoing battle between this space. Are these attacks always malicious where someone is looking to gain something or is it more about disruption or, or people just looking to break something? I think there's the whole, whole range from in, intents. It could be just the people like, there could be people just that are, Interesting to find out how does the system work or what do I have to do to the input so that the machine learning model doesn't work. That's kind of still in a, they're more interested in the the curiosity that uh, that they have to learn about that system or what does it take to change its behavior. Then probably a little bit more stronger are the people who just want to break it in a a way so that it doesn't work anymore, either to, to harm the owner of that model or then also to maybe gain personal uh, advantage because their own model is still working, whereas the competitor's model doesn't work. And I think it could even go, it depends then on the relation of the attacker and the model owner. If there's a contract between the model owner and the attacker, that the model should always be working correctly. And the the attacker then uh, submits uh, data for evaluation that contains, for example, uh, adversarial perturbations, you can say, yeah, your model doesn't work as you promised, and then there could be damages that have to be paid, and then that, that could then probably end up maybe in a court case, whereas, as we have discussed before, it could be quite difficult to prove that there's any uh, intent of adding these adversarial perturbations 
And how could then the model owner prove that the model would actually work without the perturbations? But then the definition of these perturbations are also probably, I could imagine, quite difficult to define in a, in a contract. Yeah, I, I would say there's still probably some questions to be answered there. But what I would like to show is there's really the whole range of uh, intensities, how these attacks could be from people who just normally actually people who try to get the monetary. Well, and I'm imagining like many laws, it's going to be based on precedence, right? So there were there were no uh, car laws until there were cars kind of thing. So it's mm-hmm. as these things happen and, and it escalates to a point of court cases and, and creating precedence, then we'll start to see laws like maybe, maybe one day it will be illegal to rotate an image if you know it's going to manipulate a model's outcome. So let me rewind. Uh, you mentioned something earlier. You mentioned that prior to getting into the machine learning and AI, you were working on simulations. What area were you in in simulations? Was this biological or physics or what sort of area? In chemistry, my, my PhD work was on, on simulating the, the process of formation of nanoparticles. So these are particles that are in the range of uh, 0 to 10, maybe 100 nanometers. And they... Uh, exhibit uh, the materials in that size range exhibit completely different or or different uh, material properties than they would in in a bulk size, and it was interesting to investigate this new area, breaking down the matter into smaller particles, and then being able to predict how their properties would change with the smaller particle size. Does that come down to like a is it? Uh, like a quantum phenomenon area when you get down that small? Is that what's happening? Yeah, it goes into that direction, yeah. yeah. So you have a, a, the, the chemical bonds get slightly changed as the, as the particles get smaller, which changes some of the properties. You also have an increasing surface-to-volume ratio, so much more of the materials at the surface. This also changes some of the physical properties of the material. And being able to predict that with mathematical models, that was uh, something I worked on before joining IBM. Interesting. I've heard some uh, stories about this. The one thing I was hearing was, I think it was like small silver particles that they use to coat fabrics when they get into, mm-hmm. like, say, the water supply and then affect maybe like a fish. Uh, the that that particle has a completely different effect and it could affect all kinds of like hormones and, and all sorts of things that a larger particle of, say, silver wouldn't affect. Yes, yes. And uh, the, the team I was working with was uh, especially also at that time already very interested in finding out what, what, what are all the things that could go wrong if these particles get into the environment. Or, and so the, the modeling that we wanted to do was really also to find out how to better understand what are the properties of these small particles, be able to better predict what could go wrong once they leave the environment that we uh, intend them to be originally. And that's probably something related to my current work. We also try to find out what could go wrong with all the machine learning models uh, that we are creating. So I've never really thought about it, but that could be kind of a parallel between my what could go wrong when we deploy all these things. That is interesting. And and part of the reason I was asking is I was trying to draw that connection of how it went from Legos, you know, through computers into simulating the the real world in in computers. But I was wondering, where where did the jump from from that research to where you are now? How did it happen? But I I can already see that, yeah, there's a similar problem solving. uh, It's just in a different realm. 
there's also a trend in, in let's say something that started to come up when I was working on these material properties is that it's now it's it's possible to make uh, very large amounts of of experiments through automation, which at some point produce so much data that a single a team of uh, scientists is not able to really uh, find all the conclusions in that data. So all these machine learning tools are also very popular in in other in in scientific fields like that to analyze data and find relations between the data and the outcomes that are that might on the first view not not be that obvious to to the scientists. And so that's what there was already a kind of a connection to the machine learning. Interesting. That being said, it makes me wonder too, are we going to start to see, you know, uh, or maybe we already are, AI and machine learning exploits? Maybe a, a, a human coder couldn't actually write the algorithm that could disrupt your machine learning algorithm, but maybe they could create something like you're saying, like, a, you know, automation or, you know, using AI machine learning to disrupt AI machine learning. Yeah. I don't want to give people ideas here. Actually, it is something we are discussing for uh, for releases later this year for art. Uh, let's say, see if we can include some tools that are based on reinforcement learning. And there, the idea is usually that you just would define kind of the the characteristic or the, let's say the rewards of the attack. In the, in this case, it, the the reward for the attack would be if the model has changed uh, its behavior, then the program gets a reward for that. And through that, it learns to make better attacks over time. And uh, I think that could be could be a very, uh, very effective tool. Or, because most of the attacks that we have so far have been really devised by humans, and they're mostly based on optimization. And they work quite well. But uh, maybe at some point, for stronger defenses, uh, an attack algorithm that could learn over time sounds like a very, very effective approach, especially since the attack and the evaluation phase could be completely automated. So the, the algorithm running on a on a machine could run as very as much as many attacks as as it needs to to learn the behavior of this defense without any requirements for human interventions. But yeah, I think definitely that could be. Good. So let me ask you: Is there Anything I haven't asked you that I should have or anything, especially <laughs> thinking about our audience that you're like, hey, I really want to impart this to, to our, our listeners and viewers. Maybe, I, I don't know if, one message I definitely would like to make sure that, to share with that art is really an open source project and uh, all the tools that we have are on, on uh, the repository and GitHub available. And we, we are really uh, welcoming feedback from users, but also contribute from uh, external uh, programmers. Uh, I think there are a lot of uh, uh, researchers at universities and at other uh, labs who are developing new defenses, new attacks, and they present them at conferences. And uh, if somebody would be interested to contribute their tool to the library, we are very, very interested and very open to, to welcome these new tools. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Luke, for, for the nice, nice questions and for the interesting discussions with you. Thank you very much.